In fact, we're going to see Brad and Steve Armstrong come out first. We haven't seen Brad for a long time here in World Championship Wrestling. You always know what's going on. Where's he been? Well, last week he was right here on Prime. You know what I mean. Oh, you mean, you mean what? <laughs> I just thought you kind of got backlogged. Yeah. Because of the following special program, Barnaby Jones will not be presented this evening. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown Estate in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode Swansong Cease, or episode 66 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, we're turning to one of my favorites. Once again, it seems like all of these are my favorites at this point, because I just kind of cover the episodes that I want to cover. This would be WCW Prime from March 11th, 1996. I did two episodes of WCW Prime in pretty short order uh, several months ago and I thought that maybe I should just leave it be for a little while and then I noticed a few of them on Daily Motion so I grabbed one of them off there and then sure enough the episode turned up on YouTube from some outlaw uploader that is definitely going to get his account (laughs) deleted because this person then uploaded a bunch of WCW Saturday Nights. Now, nothing that's on the network, but much of it got blocked. And when that happens, when you upload a bunch of stuff that just gets blocked in short order, it's really kind of a sign that your YouTube account is going to be deleted pretty quickly. But before I get into all that, let me get in my plugs. Email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. Twitter.com slash GF Allentown Pod. That's how I put it in the show description last week because I realized that that is actually what would link to my Twitter profile on there rather than putting at GF Allentown Pod. So uh, trying something different there. And you're probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only Feed in association with Place to Be Nation. Go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon to make your purchases on Amazon. Nothing extra, but a portion gets kicked back to Place to Be to help with site costs. I'm going to be needing another candle soon because I'm watching the Balsam's candle that I got. It's about halfway done now. Those things last forever, which for 20 bucks is a pretty good deal. My wife doesn't really like the balsam smell in the house. (laughs) during like the non-Christmas season but I particularly enjoy it and she's not here this week she's in Pittsburgh I suppose this means I should have done a local Pittsburgh promotion as part of the show but since I'm not actually traveling there I I would love to go to Pittsburgh to go to PNC Park see some baseball there because that's one of the nicer stadiums in Major League Baseball but just haven't had a chance to do that 
as of yet. Do want to give a shout out. Uh, th- this would be called the log rolling segment of the program. Th- that's kind of what the Algonquin Roundtable was accused of back in the day, apparently, of just putting over each other's witticisms. And I have a very tight family here. Not only Place to Be Nation, Place to Be Nation Wrestling Feed, Place to Be Nation Pop, Pro Wrestling Only Feed, of course, but the Our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn. The Sportscasters, which is firing back up with Steve Bennett. Wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett and Brian Malonis. And, you know, it's so nice to be part of this greater podcasting community. You know, I've met a lot of nice people through this. You, you think of the internet. Oh, everybody is so nasty on the internet. Like, no, that's just Twitter replies. And I guess there's some of it on Facebook, but I don't really dive too deep into that in fact i had a new year's resolution i want to say it was 2015 to not read twitter replies anymore and i held my up my end of the bargain on that for a while and then i then i backslid which you know that's a good idea for anybody is to not read the twitter reply like that's kind of like the lowest form of life like the people who reply to mike francesa's tweets and by the way i totally disagree with mike francesa joining twitter because his whole his whole gimmick the sports radio guy in new york was that he wasn't on social media but he had this army uh, this this mongo nation or whatever do all the social media for him and create buzz that was part of the magic of it now that he's tweeting on there it, it kind of changes things a bit so I, I had an interesting week. I was actually down in New York. Drove down Friday night for this first communion on Saturday. And I have to, you know, as a kid, I, I went to Catholic Mass every single week. I went to Catholic High School as well. So I, I know the Mass, and I've grown accustomed to various things. Now, for one thing, I did not like how the singer kept putting his own spin on things. He kept... Like, Lamb of God, you take away the shins of the world. He kept making a sh sound. Now, I'm the last person who should be making fun of accents or whatever, but my God, I wanted to just stand up and say, Jesus Christ, could you stop doing the sh sound? But I feel like that would have really been out of order at a uh, eight-year-old's first communion. Uh, <laughs> I'm also upset by the whole how they've changed the lyrics somewhat. I mean, it's bad enough that the Canadian National Anthem, which was an almost perfect song the way it was, has this all of us command, which, by the way, they could have just made it all of her command because there's a queen as, you know, it's a queen as the head monarch now. You could have done it that way. And all of us command? That just means, it sounds like you're saying all of U.S. command, like you're relying on the United States. That that seems like something you really wouldn't want. But in the Catholic Church, you, you know, they say, the Lord be with you and in your spirit. What the hell does that mean? Like, whatever happened to and also with you? What, because the priest has to be male? Is Is that what this is all about? I mean, I don't mean to sound like an old guy, you know, an old man shaking a fist at a cloud here, but I know the mass, I know the routine, I I could probably even recite like homilies, chapter and verse, like they were Ric Flair promos or something, but hey, you know, they want to do things that way, clearly, you know, they haven't had more people going to mass than, than recently, right? Yeah, just drawing people back into the church, but somebody asked, I guess one of the boys, like, 
yeah, uh, which hand you you take communion with? And I said, well, I'm actually I'm actually a switch hitter with the communion. I wait to see which hand it's going to be served with by the person giving out the communion. So they gave it right-handed, so I took the communion left-handed. Had they given the communion left-handed, because I want the good platoon split, I would have taken it right-handed in that case. So, you know, these are things that you do to entertain yourself during a mass. Also, you know, trying not to laugh during the consecration because I got I got into real trouble one time in high school because we, we we had we had a joke. So, Catholic humor, you know, there there's a lot of it. I'm not going to do all of my material here for the Catholic mass, but suffice it to say, it was a pretty long day between that meal and then drove back on Sunday morning to go to the Red Sox game against the Baltimore Orioles, where the Orioles got 13 hits and managed to score zero runs. So this is my life. I race back from New York. I drive three and a half hours home and then drive almost an hour into Boston because I wanted to drop off some stuff first and you know check on the cat who is now in much better health than last weekend it, it just you know to do all that stuff then I go in zero runs on 13 hits which apparently has been done a few times in history but not very often in the history of baseball and when you think of stuff like that they play 162 games a season and they've been playing it for over 100 years and this kind of stuff hardly ever happens Apparently, there was a team in 1928 who got 14 hits in nine innings and didn't score any runs. So it's something that you know hasn't happened in 90 years. Apparently, they could have just gotten one more hit. So they lose five to nothing, and Fenway Park just makes me crazy. And I, I'm just glad that I don't have to go there anymore. And that's pretty much the extent of the baseball talk that you're going to get. From, although I actually did make a note about something later, because the the one thing that makes me feel good in terms of watching wrestling and I, and I mentioned this many months ago when I did those WCW Prime shows is being able to watch these shows because they really have no bearing on anything that's going on you don't have to think when you're watching WCW Prime because there's no story there's there's nothing going on I was shocked on this show that they were actually having update segments for WCW Uncensored 96. Yes, the one with the triple, quadruple, super duper Tower of Doom with the alliance to end Hulkamania and all that stuff. But for those of you who don't remember or weren't listening at the earlier WCW Prime shows that I did, which were episodes 37 and 40, the deal was Prime Sports Networks was this sort of syndicated sports network that originated out of Southern California in the beginning, in the late 1980s, televising Laker games and Los Angeles Kings hockey games. And they kind of syndicated programming out to various regional sports networks across the country. And WCW Prime aired on this channel on Monday nights, starting early in 1995 and running through October of 1996. So yes, when Nitro started up, they already had a Monday night show that was airing. So <laughs> it, it makes me laugh because there was a Nitro on March 11th, 1996. And I watched it and it, kind of, it wasn't very good. I actually kind of fell asleep in the middle of it. The most notable thing that happened there 
was the Steiner brothers making their long-awaited return to World Championship Wrestling. They match against the Road Warriors. I guess I, I guess you could say it was a rematch of their tournament bout at Starcade '89. So something that's about six and a half years in the making. And the Road Warriors prevailed through some cheating with the spikes off their shoulder pad. So that's what's going on in Nitro Land on the A Show here on WCW Prime. On the it's not even really the C Show. It's more like the D Show because you have Nitro. There's no thunder yet at that point. So your B Show is WCW Saturday Night. Then your C Show might be worldwide it might be wcw main event and then you have prime just off in the wilderness by itself but it's so so watchable and you see different wrestlers that maybe you'd nest wouldn't necessarily see on nitro and on this show is definitely <laughs> some classic wcw c and d show personalities that you'd see like the gambler the renegade who actually face off against each other which is quite fun shark although shark you'd see on nitro because but eventually he would become a man he is a man not a shark dave sullivan the barrio brothers versus men at work this this is wcw prime down to its essence here in march of 1996 it's just this weird peculiar thing that lasted about 18 months that aired on the same night at the same time probably as their main show that had Chris Cruz and Dusty Rhodes cracking me up on commentary every so often. I mean, not consistently. I mean, they weren't doing like a Marx Brothers routine, but Dusty would kind of, you know, just sort of go off. I have my thing that I developed a long time ago. It was actually from a, I think a WCW Worldwide show where Dusty was presenting a match of the week or something, where I imagined a world where Dusty Rhodes was the host of Family Feud, which I wish in one alternate universe that that could have happened at some point. I I would like to travel back in time and convince Dusty that maybe being a game show host part-time, or at least convince the producers of Family Feud that when they have WCW week, (laughs) And they have Sting leading the crew of of baby faces against the heels led by Sid or whoever it was to let Dusty Rhodes host it for that week just so I can kind of see what it would look like. But enough about Dream for right now. Because I have done a lot of 1995 and 96 WCW lately with you know the prime falling in this time period also did a wcw saturday night from may of 1996 right the the saturday before scott hall shows up on nitro and then i did the wcw main event from april of 1995 a couple of weeks ago with the blue bloods vignettes and this is something that when i started doing this podcast and i envisioned doing it I was expecting to do more WWF shows from the 80s and early 90s because it's something that I remember and it's where I'm from and and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, I had seen WCW as well. I mean, particularly into the late 90s with you know the NWO and all that when everybody was watching it. But this middle period here, I don't know what it is about it. It really just sort of fascinates me 
the sort of underneath stuff where, yeah, you have Hogan at the top and he's doing his own thing because he can call his own shots, as is his right. But underneath that, there's still a lot of fun to be had, particularly with a show like WCW Prime. It, watching wrestling, and I, I've said this many, many episodes ago, is it is, is a journey, and I'm willing to let the journey take me. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ride the wave. I'm just gonna put my arms out and just let you know. I'm just gonna ride in its wake. I, I don't, I don't know where it's going. I mean, I know the next few shows that I'm doing. I've actually kind of planned out stuff for the next few episodes. Because we're getting close, uh, you get six. I, I already have an episode picked out for sixty-eight. I have an idea for episode sixty-nine, which I don't. It, it all kind of depends if I can find a Val Venus match somewhere, and that. But you know, it's just sort of letting me see different parts of wrestling history is you know what I what I like about this. It's at some point I got to go back to Mid Atlantic in the early nineteen eighties. Yes, I've covered Jim Crockett promotions from. You know the middle 80s from 86 and 87 but I'd like to go back a little bit before that even to like 81 82 83 in those pre Starcade days to see what they were up to in the in the studio with the ring that felt like it was taking up most of the studio based on how they were shooting things and the other idea of not only doing WWF shows to kind of expand the horizons a bit and do a little bit of AWA or whatever is you you run out of things to talk about with <laughs> certain WWF guys who show up week after week like hacksaw Jim Duggan I had to use my phone a friend many weeks ago because I just had no more takes on Duggan I mean how can I talk about him for the fourteenth time Texas tornado last week I I didn't even talk I don't even think I even talked about him more than you know cursory yeah Kerry had problems and then I just started talking about tornado season of 1991 because there's really not a lot left to say about some of those wwf guys given how many episodes i've done but you know it's a lot of a lot of fresh product on here even the men at work match it's not the same men at work as in a previous episode that i did so that is somewhat fresh as well but i am particularly excited because when there's a rick flair match that always gets my attention but the fact that it is against alex wright is something that I really speaks to me because I have a thing. I don't know what it is, but I love it when the top guys in a promotion are interacting with mid carters in just like a one-on-one basis. I don't know why, but the the one that I always think of is D'Lo Brown hitting a frog splash on Stone Cold Steve Austin at the 1999 Royal Rumble, and just thinking that oh, that's pretty amazing that he's allowed to hit his finisher on the top guy of the promotion. But yes, Alex Wright versus Ric Flair is the prime cut moo match of the week. I'll, I'll let Dusty do the big moo later on. So with all that in mind, why don't we just jump right into the show? theme I used this week is Saved by the Bell. Not none of this new class or any of those spin-off. The the original sauce of Saved by the Bell as a birthday present for my friend 
Jim, who turns 39 today as this show drops. And this is this is the same Jim who had the same name as the jobber who lost to The Undertaker about a dozen episodes ago or so. So happy birthday, Jim, if you're actually listening. You know, a lot of podcasts say, oh, when, when I started out, only my friends were listening. And I guess for me, that's really not even true, except for Keith, who is the voice of Greetings from Allentown and the, maybe even the conscience of the show. And like I started out, I don't even know where the hell the listeners kind of came from at a certain point. But again, as I always say, thank you very much for listening. The, the world I knew this week in 1996 is actually kind of funny because I played my last youth hockey game that Saturday where I was, it, this is vintage Pete fashion. I got thrown out of the game for fighting. And then when I got to the uh, door to go to the locker room, I turned around, took off my glove, and held up a middle finger. So the attitude era was starting in Woburn Youth Hockey at that time. By the way, that is all on tape, too. I should probably make a GIF file of that because the aforementioned Jim thinks it's one of the most hilarious things that he's ever seen is the fact that that was captured on tape by my father. And I, I actually do still have the tape. And this is also the week I went to Washington, D.C. on that close-up trip that I referenced several episodes ago where I met Jerry Adams and my congressman said that he was going to win the Nobel Peace Prize as all of us kind of scoffed at that one. That trip was interesting for a couple of different reasons, not because it was became a hookup session or anything like that, although apparently stuff like that was going on, maybe even maybe even with me. I, I'll, I'll never tell. But our school... It, it was several schools, but there was a school for the deaf that was paired up with us. And it was pretty cool. It was a little bit of a challenge trying to communicate with him, but it led to one of the greatest stories of all time, if you'll indulge me. We're in the hotel. There's two of us in the room, and there are two kids from the school for the deaf. So the fire alarm goes off in the middle of the night. Now, obviously, they can't hear it, and there's nothing in the room to flash to let people know that the fire alarm is going off so the guys who are in that room I was not in that room it was two of the people from my school with two of the kids from the school from the deaf and like they have no idea like what to do so he he, he wakes up the deaf kids and is like you know doesn't obviously know sign language or anything so he takes out a notepad and holds up a sign that says might be a fire you imagine like just alarming somebody in that sort of way like oh okay you could have written you know the fire alarm's going off we have to leave but I, I guess that would have just been too many words and speaking of a lot of words we got Dusty Rhodes and Chris Cruz here on the call as I said and no hat for the American dream I, I don't know what it is about Dusty but when he appeared on screen well the first thing I noticed is he's wearing all black I guess he's trying to channel a Johnny Cash look or Maybe maybe Dream just got back from a funeral or something, but he kind of his the top of his head is so flat. He looks like a cartoon character after like it got hit with a mallet over the top of his head. Like a very I I don't quite understand what's going on. But Dream brings us into the show as only he can. Well, Groove, I had talked to Alex before we came on the air here in the arena. Talked about how important this thing is. Moomatch, not only uh, facing Nature Boy Ric Flair, he was excited about being in the Moomatch because he has heard so much about his say Dream. 
Set me off with a good mood today. Get the prime cutter rolling, and I'll be ready for the Nature Boy Rick Flash. So he, I believe he's got a good game plan, but brother, he's going to need it against the Nature Boy Rick Flash. I am telling you that he would be the greatest host that Family Feud has ever had, simply because Fast Money would just be the contestants saying, what? What? All over and over again, like it was a Steve Austin promo from 2002. It's also the context of this being one of the highlights of Alex Wright's career and life being in the Moo match. I would say it ranks number three, with number two being the fall of the Berlin Wall when he was a young lad back in 89. And then shortly after that, seeing David Hasselhoff in concert. For our first match, we have Shark. John Tenta taking on Dave, don't call me, Evad Sullivan. And Shark is on the back nine, to borrow a hole-in-one Darso expression. He's soon to be just good old John Tenta again, because he got a little bit tired of being non-human. I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish. I'm not an avalanche. I'm a man. John Tenta. All right, John, I hear you. You're tired of playing a silly gimmick where you are a non-human entity. That's fine. I mean, in this match, you're going against Dave Sullivan, who won Worst Gimmick of the Year for 1994, where his gimmick was actually Hulk Hogan's sycophant in 94 and 95. I think I talked about that a few episodes ago, where I said there is a person out there who really liked Hulk Hogan in WCW, but didn't care for his stuff in the 80s and early 90s and WWF. There was certainly a person that, out there that's like that. But with Tenta, that is a couple months later when he makes that speech, after he gets half his head shaved by <laughs> Big Bubba Rogers in a rather interesting <laughs> thing where he decided, I- I'm going to keep the uh, half-shaved head for whatever reason just so that he can remember. But it kind of ruins my thing that I've talked about with John Tenta where he could have basically been the entire Western Conference of the NHL. If it had been a few years before, God willing, it would have been the Campbell Conference. He could have been... What other gimmicks could he have been from the NHL? Could he have been a flame? I don't know about that. I mean, it seemed like maybe a logical next step. It's a non-human thing. Could he be a king? No, no, that's that's Lawler, and you don't want to really confuse people like that. Could he be a duck? A mighty duck, as it were? Or perhaps even a coyote? I don't really see him as a coyote because while he is quick for a big man, uh, coyotes are are more like dog-sized, so that's fine. I think the gimmick for him from the Western Conference of the National Hockey League, we must look to his native province of British Columbia and the Vancouver Canucks, who are named after Johnny Canuck, which is sort of a mascot of sorts for Canada. In the United States, we have Uncle Sam, up there, they have Johnny Canuck, who is kind of a personification of Canadian culture during World War II and at other points in history. And this works because Tenta is from Surrey, British Columbia. Why not just make him a Johnny Canuck character? In fact, when he did the tryout match as Earthquake Evans in the WWF in 1989, he's wearing a flannel sort of thing. He could just bring that back and call himself Johnny Canuck. Maybe you'd have to change the name to it since you don't want to be infringing on country's mascot or whatever. Now, as for Dave Sullivan, he he didn't exactly get high marks for his work. In the Wrestling Observer newsletter, he won Worst Wrestler of the Year for 1993 and 94, 
which is quite an accomplishment considering there was a lot of competition <laughs> going on in the two major promotions of the time to win worst wrestler i think is something something of a feat i think real name bill dannenhauer jr so he's not really kevin sullivan's brother he did have some success in the early 90s in the beginning of his career in portland played a character called captain ron in global i i don't i don't know if it was named after the kurt russell movie or not or the little embroidered thing on charlie sheen's jacket when he goes to the back of the bus in major league and finds out he's not starting the playoff game yeah go ahead and watch major league and, and you'll notice that it's always sticked in my stuck in my head since then but now he's apparently like an athletic director at a high school in nebraska which you know is, is pretty nice but he did have as i said some success early in his career he was trained by the grappler len denton and they won a tag team title very early in his run he ends up in wcw and kind of gets stuck again with a gimmick it's fitting that these two guys are meeting up in this match a gimmick that quite frankly is kind of embarrassing if it was a hulk hogan sycophant gimmick in say 1986 or 1987 that that's something that somebody could have pulled off i think it's like little buddy or whatever but in 94 and 95 it was kind of you know the 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 jig was up there it it really was not going to work his father rather interesting was a football player for the 1960 boston patriots and the 1960 denver broncos and that that was the first year of the american football league and i thought that was kind of interesting that he was an original to that league the denver broncos uniforms from 1960 are some of the ugliest in the history of pro sports where they had the infamous vertical stripe socks that I believe they brought back for a game or two in 2009 for the 50th season of all those original AFL teams. Sullivan would bring a rabbit to the ring with him, which is rather unusual, and it would only make me think of the guy, Lenny, from Mice and Men, who just wanted to tend the rabbits and all that. Kind of a a guy who mentally may, may not have been all there. So he's carrying around ringside, and Dusty ponders about people with allergies in the front row i gotta say i don't remember allergies being as big a thing in the mid 90s as they are now i think that has to do with awareness and being able to diagnose it but dusty has some other business to get into here and it's really strange it's one of the great wcw prime non sequiturs last week i got so many letters i gotta see it right off the get-go here we were very saddened at the fact that Manny Fernandez was not on the prime last week, and and and, uh, and he's fine, everything's good, but uh, I think he has other duties uh, uh, concerning our producer. You know what? Excuse me? I ain't gonna let no more out, because I ain't supposed to say nothing about her doing the promo. Yeah, please don't let any more out. I don't like it when you let things out. Okay, but you gotta call... I guess that's like calling the 700 number to find out stuff like that. The 700 yeah, number? Yeah, 9, 800, 9, 700. And that is confusing because there was a Manny Fernandez, a wrestler, one half of Raging and Ravishing in the 1980s in Jim Crockett Promotions. That's the one that you would think he was talking about. But this is a completely different Manny Fernandez who would show up on WCW Prime every so often, particularly in the beginning of 1996. He made several appearances in several losing efforts. 
And he's not to be confused with the defensive lineman from the Miami Dolphins from the early 1970s, Manny Fernandez, because he would be far too old at that point. He'd be pushing 50 years old. And it's a very common name. There was a Manny Fernandez who was a goaltender for the Boston Bruins, and I actually have a rather interesting story. They, they traded for him in an effort to make him the starter over Tim Thomas, but it didn't take because Manny got hurt in his first year with the Bruins. And in the second year with the team, he was a pretty competent backup. He had a pretty good record, some good numbers, but it was the only full season he would be on the team. And as a season ticket holder, I got to go to a DVD release party. They were releasing something like the the history of the Boston Bruins on DVD and something like a two-disc set. And I'm hanging out by the bar. All, all All the players are there. I got to meet a number of them. And Manny Fernandez, he's just kind of talking with Phil Kessel, who was then with the Bruins. And Manny Fernandez says maybe the funniest thing I have ever heard an athlete say in sort of a private setting. And I probably shouldn't even give this away, but it's been 10 years. I mean, it doesn't really matter. He looks at a woman who is clearly pregnant across the bar and says to Phil Kessel, Hey, Phil, 200 bonus points if you nail the pregnant chick. I had to stifle myself from laughing because I didn't want to like let him know that I was listening to what he was saying. But that that is certainly the greatest story of an athlete in a private moment that I've experienced, unless I'm forgetting something. A shark is very angry here. He he wants some real competition, uh, and Evad Sullivan. He's really just chum. He's in green trunks, so he's given up the Hogan cosplay by 96. Uh, You know, the bit was up at that point. And Dave Sullivan was not going to be wrestling in WCW much longer. In fact, his wrestling career is pretty much over in the next couple of years. Dave gets a few rights in, and Shark misses a charge. And three clotheslines in a row by Sullivan kind of makes the Shark a little bit wobbly, takes him to a knee, and then he kind of lightly pushes him down. (laughs) <laughs> in kind of a funny spot, I guess. And then he misses a charge of his own, and now finally we are going to transition this match over to Shark, who hits the classic John Tenta power slam, where he would hold the guy almost like a baby, like with complete ease, and then dropped one of the big elbows. He had one of the better elbows for a man of his size, where he would really get up in the air. And he finishes it off with the shark attack. I was waiting for the seated senton splash a la earthquake and all that. But here he uses something that looked like a crappier looking Uranagi slam off an Irish whip. Very much like the big boss man slam. (laughs) Which is funny because those two guys would be feuding later in the year. So shark picking up a victory over former Hulk Hogan sycophant, Dave Sullivan. Any double half cap lot to the next phone. You who <coughs> miss smoke a double decaf and a weird double lid. Excuse me. Hello, Americano. Extra water. Twix gives you chewy caramel twice, milk chocolate twice, and that great cookie crunch twice. That commercial didn't make me want a Twix. It made me want to go down to any Starbucks in a major city in the United States and just beat the shit out of somebody who had one of those annoying douchebag coffee orders. I don't really like Starbucks because 
when I used to drink that because it was next to the Barnes and Noble that I worked in, technically it was separate. I guess it might have been part of the store. I I kept throwing up during during my break. I, I would drink this hot coffee and then I would vomit and then I would go back to work. Uh, those were very tough times in my life. Other ads for Pep Boys, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, not Ron Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. The difference between the Reese's and the Ron Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is the Ron Reese one is a lot bigger, but it really isn't very good at all. Gold Bo- Bond Itch Cream and Nut Rageous, a candy bar from Reese's that I've never had before. In fact, I'm not even sure I've ever really noticed it <laughs> in any sort of store. It, as they went to commercial, the bumper was done by the original Men at Work, which is Mark Starr and Chris Canyon. And Canyon, it's, I kind of forgot that he was in Men at Work. He was sort of the bumbling guy who would cause them to lose very early in his career. And they are up next against the Barrio brothers, which... This is another interesting matchup here where I feel like you you put these two together, one of them, the men at work, should construct housing for the Barrio brothers, with Barrio meaning a ghetto is what effectively it means. So I think... I think those two could actually work together. Maybe they should form some sort of alliance. The way to ease a housing crunch is to build more housing and also to ease regulations on, you know, on stuff like that so that you can build more housing in the first place. The more you know. And the fact that men at work are facing the Barry Brothers, one of these teams is going to win a match here. And I was very excited coming in because... I knew that Men at Work would probably be favored, probably a two or three to one favorite in this one, but somebody's going to win unless they do a double DQ, which would be very weird to do on a show like WCW Prime. It's like the Orioles White Sox series that's been going on this week, the fourth game of it t- today as as it drops. Somebody has to win those games between these two awful teams that have won 30% of their games so far. It's it's just very exciting. Canyon had a good look even then, but it, I think it took him a while to sort of figure things out. It's such a sad story looking at him. He's coping with all sorts of various issues, also with issues of sexuality as well. And I hope that we're in a better place, not only as a society, but I don't think in wrestling there's necessarily been as much of a stigma. I mean, look at what it look at what professional wrestling it is. I mean, there shouldn't be as big a stigma on somebody if they are gay. But I'm glad we're in a place in a society where more people can come out. I mean, just go back to 1996 and how Ellen being a gay character on TV was some sort of revolutionary thing. Kind of unprecedented that I give myself the move along sound, but I have been listening to an awful lot of Howard Stern lately on Sirius. If you think there can't be any good spots in a match between Minute Work and the Barrio Brothers, I, I submit to you this one where there's a clean break in the corner between Ricky Santana and Canyon, and then they go to hit each other at the exact same time, and they, they were both momentarily stunned by it. It, it i don't know if i don't know if that was on purpose but if it was a solid job by them gotta give these guys a round of applause they're really putting out on a d show like this then they do kind of a quick sequence with some you know, decent mat work not completely 
terrible. And then Canyon starts working the arm. Star, tagged a star who comes in off the top. But a forearm gets the advantage for the Barrio brothers. And they cut the ring in half for a very short period. And Fidel Sierra, David Sierra, is in there making, I think, his third appearance because we have a Barrio Brothers match, and then he faced Ric Flair back in episode six. I, th- I think it was him anyway. And backdrop by Star. And then Star follows it up with, you, you know, I love Arn Anderson spine busters. I particularly love gift files of Arn Anderson spine busters. And I should probably gift this file because Mark Star gives basically the shittiest version of an Arn Anderson spine buster where he picks him up and then he hesitates and then he turns and then instead of driving the guy into the mat he just kind of drops him not <laughs> and they they even make light of it on commentary See, he throwed him down no finesse throwed him down I'm not sure Star knew what to do, only that he had to get off, yeah. the, sent that off his back. You're right, he had to get loose from him. Yeah, just do whatever Arn Anderson would do. Even if you have to wear a bracelet that says, what would Arn do? You know, WWAD, <laughs> something like that. And uh, The Barrio Brothers, they do regain the advantage here and cut off the ring for a very brief period. And Santana chucks Star out through the ropes that looked like kind of a nasty bump. It was to the far side, so he didn't get a really good look at it. But it looks like he just went... He airmailed through the top and middle rope and didn't really hang on to anything to slow himself down. That 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 looked good, although if I saw a better camera angle, it probably wouldn't look as good. And Sierra is in. He's holding Canyon, and I can see that they're setting up for the WrestleMania 1 main event finish. And Santana dives into Sierra, which was interesting that they were doing the hold the guy up and instead of like an axe handle or something like that, he does a crossbody because that seems like very poor planning. Because if he's holding him, he's going to end up crossbodying his own partner, and his own partner would actually end up taking the blunt brunt of the blow. I mean, very poor planning by the Barrio brothers. This is probably why they did not pick up very many victories or anything like that. Canyon reverses a corner whip with Santana and Star who is now somehow back involved here and is technically the legal man, comes off the top with a drop kick. It wasn't the prettiest missile drop kick I've ever seen, but kind of a neat finish where you Irish whip the guy into a missile drop kick. I want to say that I've seen this before from the Rockers or maybe it was the Rock and Roll Express. I, I, can't, I feel like I've seen this finish before on an earlier episode. And men at work emerge victorious in this one and in the finest wcw c and d show tradition they know exactly what to do which is you cut a promo to the camera where you know the guy the cameraman is up on the apron and you got to come over or in the aisle way or wherever and you're gonna you're, you're gonna say a few words but nobody is ever going to understand what it is that you're saying and nobody is going to remember it five minutes from now but they did get honored with the Pep Boys Power Pin of the Week. So, hey, you can't say that WCW Prime didn't have some pretty decent name sponsors. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today. 
and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation Wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Get an ad for the art of woodworking. That, that was never really my thing. I had to take wood shop in middle school. I think two of the things that I made are still hanging around in my mother's house. I think one of them was like a little tiny bench. I don't know what would fit on it. Maybe maybe a cat could sit on it or something. I don't know. And then there's an ad for Football Mundial airing on Prime Sports Network. They would air soccer, but they would also they were probably more known for motorsports, which was less televised at the like the lower levels, like the Grand National Series and stuff like that. We're going to see more on that because they have a WCW car race or car update coming later on, and that's the series that they run in. 1996, actually, the debut year of MLS Soccer, the main soccer league in the United States. So it was kind of a big year for soccer in this country. Yeah, it's not the greatest league in the world. It's probably not even the second or third greatest league in the world, but it is good, high-quality soccer, and it has lasted now for over 20 years. So I was very skeptical at the time, but uh, it has stood the test of time. So they go to, a, speaking of things that have not stood the test of time, and the Uncensored 96 update desk. And this is very peculiar how they did that, because they take Gene Oakland, and he's always been very good at promoting the upcoming pay-per-view at the desk or the update segment in the WWF. So you figure, okay, he's going to have some of the same magic here. Honestly, he's just running down what the matches are, and there's no promos or anything. He's just telling you what's going to be on Uncensored 96, so it's really kind of a strange segment. So, okay, sure, Sting and whoever is going to face the Road Warriors, it would end up being Booker T. Originally, it was supposed to be Sting and Lex Luger, but Luger was pulled from that match, which was actually a Chicago street fight, probably because Luger was so unsure of the city of Chicago, even though it is his kayfabe hometown. He was pulled from it by Jimmy Hart so that he could be in the alliance to end Hulkamania in the Doomsday Cage match, which I'm going to save my thoughts on that for the later Control Center segment. So Luger is in the alliance there. I just think it like it's the goofiest name in the world. It just makes me think of Job in the Alliance of Magicians from from Arrested Development. We demand to be taken seriously. These eight heels that are of varying quality. You have Arn and Flair, and then you had Pellman, who didn't even you know wasn't even there for the actual match because he was off doing his loose cannon thing. You had Luger, the Z Gangsta which is really Zeus, the (laughs) ultimate solution, or as they originally called him, the final solution in one of the most tone-deaf things that WCW ever did. And that goes a long way to call an incoming wrestler the final solution before, you know, certain... uh, (laughs) The Anti-Defamation League might have had something to say about that. You have a man versus woman match in Uncensored. And in this one, unlike the Missy Hyatt, Paulie Dangerously thing at Great American Bash 91, this one actually took place between Medusa and Colonel Robert Parker. And it was kind of an embarrassment. 
I'm not sure why Medusa had to lose that match. It's uh, left me kind of scratching my head. And then Johnny B. Bad taking on Diamond Dallas Page. And Page putting his career on the line in that one. It's just kind of interesting because Johnny B. Bad ended up winning and DDP... He stays in the promotion. Johnny B. Bad is about to leave and, in fact, had just lost the WCW World Television title to Lex Luger. So he is on his way out the door. And Johnny B. Bad and Diamond Dallas Page, it felt like they had about 50 pay-per-view matches. It was kind of like the mid-card Cena Orton of the time. Always seemed like they were together, like from... I want to say Spring Stampede 94, and here they are two years later, and they have not quite settled their differences. And they go to promotional consideration. We get a little blurb for Hot Pockets, which I'm now at a point where when I hear the little... Hot Pockets! I actually think more Jim Gaffigan than the actual product itself. Video game College Slam that was available on all the consoles at the time. It's no Coach K basketball as far as i'm concerned uh, some multi-video tape thing of the history of 20th century warfare i'm not sure why you'd want to sit around and watch that i feel like that's something for an older world war ii vet to kind of i don't know i guess relive his younger days and then add for bowflex for when you're too antisocial to join a gym i mean i i run i i go to the park and i run and uh that's that's how I get my exercise. I used to do sit. So I should go back to doing more sit-ups and, and medicine ball sort of stuff. That would always strengthen my core. And somewhere in the darkness, the gambler he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away. I really had to do the sticks, Kenny Rogers thing, just because. I mean, it's a matchup of the Renegade versus the Gambler. <laughs> Where else but on WCW Prime in 1996 could you get such a quality matchup? As I mentioned at the end of last week's show when I referenced that this match would be taking place, probably going to be a lot of renegade gamblers now with sports betting opened up to all, not just those who want to go online for that sort of thing. I I really don't like to do online betting because I feel like it's too easy. It almost seems like kind of a gateway. Not that I think I would develop a gambling problem per se. It's that I kind of feel the same way that Kramer does on Seinfeld you know just just stay away as much as I'd like to bet on departures and arrivals at the airport you know there's really no point in doing that you know alternate universe me might have stayed in the gambling industry when I was out in Las Vegas I, I could have taken a job at the gambler's bookstore which was then downtown it was still kind of close to downtown it moved into another store so it's kind of like a store within a store but hey you know, I made I made my decision to come back to Massachusetts, and I'm glad that I did. Now, the Gambler, there's really nothing I can add about him that hasn't already been said on the Letters from Center Stage podcast. So, as for the Renegade, uh, poor Rick Wilson is the first thing that I have to say about this guy. Because, 
for all of his faults as a pro wrestler, let's talk about the human being, Rick Wilson. They did not do right by him in any way because of the situation they put this guy in where you're insinuating very, very strongly that the Ultimate Warrior is going to be at the side of Hulk Hogan at Uncensored 95, and it turns out to be this renegade, and once people figured that out, there were still some people out there who thought that the Ultimate Warrior was dead or whatever, and this was the new Ultimate Warrior or whatever, but, you know, there was a lot of vitriol towards this guy. I think back to when I was working in PetSmart in 1997, I've referenced how I kind of got back into wrestling around that time because my manager in the receiving department was watching wrestling all the time, and he was a huge Ultimate Warrior fan. And (laughs) he would call the renegade, quote, renafag, which I thought was a bit much and would provoke eye rolls from me. But it's just really kind of insane because you didn't really see him much on WCW television by the time 1997 rolls around. I mean, they after a while, they figured out that they, they had to get this guy off TV in some way, but they just did him absolutely no favors. They had Jimmy Hart wipe the face paint off him on an episode of Nitro in November of 95. I almost look at this as... Yeah, he's sort of like a fake Ultimate Warrior. It is the flip side of the fake Diesel character that comes along later in 1996, played by Glenn Jacobs, who goes on to become Kane and have a 20-plus year career in WWE. That's the success story of getting up off the mat in an unfortunate situation, a no-win situation. Whereas, unfortunately, Rick Wilson flounders for a while, is released from WCW, and commits suicide not long after that. So, another tragic tale in the world of wrestling. I I like to steer clear of those sorts of things, but, you know, I just want to make the point that they did not do right by this guy in any way. Not necessarily because they got rid of him, but because they just put him in an awful situation to begin with. So let's get back to positive thinking here. This the gambler, he's he's a true pro in the ring. I, I really kind of appreciate him. When it comes to jobber gimmicks, first of all, there's not that many who have an actual gimmick. The Brooklyn Brawler is probably the most famous WWF example. And yeah, in ninety five and ninety six they had a lot of the occupational guys coming in as jobbers or jobbers to the stars, the goon and all that. I would say that the gambler, because he would always show personalities flashing the cards before before the match. And in fact, Crispy Cruz and Big Dust actually sing the gambler's praises for a very brief period. The gambler's got the cards on him, brother. Well, the gambler is apparently playing with a full deck on his back, well, in his pocket, and it looks like on his tights as well. When you're on the level of the gambler, I think that counts for, quote, singing somebody's praises. I mean, you weren't going to get a whole lot. But as for the renegade, he is very much over in this antiseptic WCW worldwide style setting where you have the robot fans who are either clapping, you know, with 
no real emotion whatsoever or doing an overexpressive thumbs down because that's what the signs are telling them to do. But the Renegade is very They're actually making noise for him. And he does run over the gambler early. But then they do kind of a long headlock sequence, probably to keep the Renegade from blowing up too quickly in this match. And the, the gambler manages to get out of the headlock and Renegade who is then stuck in a side headlock, powers out of it on his own. And Dusty, <laughs> you know, a, a veteran of the Ring Wars for multiple decades, he, he has a few thoughts on getting out of headlocks. You Interesting way it. to get out of a headlock is to just duck out of it. I guess maybe the... Almost like doing a left hook. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, and duck. You duck. Duck and cover. Remember yeah, that duck and cover. Yeah, duck and cover. I remember that in school. I'm going to play kids at face in school, too. I got a great duck invitation. You ready? No. Right here, got him pinned. Did you see it? Yes. I ducked. I know it, but the fans at home, you know, sometimes we like we on radio, didn't really see that. Oh. We'll do it later when we're on camera. Eventually, the gambler gets a jawbreaker to get out of a headlock. He works very deliberate, almost Triple H-like. So when you see a Triple H match these days and you say, oh, he's working the Harley race thing. No, 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 no. It's not Harley race. It's the gambler. After all, they worked together in mid-90s WCW, and the gambler has been known to teach a thing or two over the years. Now, as you recall... The Renegade won the television title from Arn Anderson in 1995, much to the chagrin of pretty much every hardcore fan there is. But Crispy Cruz here actually misspeaks, and I ponder what this reality would have been like. You know the gambler, the former world television champion. What a wonderful world. If I ever did that song, What a Wonderful World, a karaoke, I would probably think of that alternate reality where the gambler was once WCW World Television Champion. But alas, we live in the sucky world that we live in now. Back elbow gets two, but Renegade comes back with a sunset flip, which I, seems like a guy that size. I don't I don't recall the Ultimate Warrior ever doing a sunset flip. So it would be one of those things where Jesse Ventura would be like, I can't believe he did a wrestling move. I can remember Hacksaw Jim Duggan doing a sunset flip once and Jim Ventura like losing it on commentary. It, it's kind of, for all the offense that the gambler is getting, and I'm enjoying it, it's kind of killing Renegade for this audience, which is one of the last audiences that he's over in front of, the WCW Prime Arena. He also has no face paint, as I mentioned Jimmy Hart had smeared it off him and it really taken him down, not even just a peg. The fact that he got, you know, brutalized by Jimmy Hart, that, that's getting taken down about five or six, seven pegs, I think, and really kind of, you know, really knocked him off track. Not that he was ever going to get on track using that particular character, but hey, I mean, you know, get him off TV for six to eight months and bring him back as something else after a little bit more seasoning, you know, or, or just have him on the house shows or whatever to give him experience. But he does fire up. With a springboard back elbow, which I can't. <laughs> this was uh, China level uh, stuff. It was not a not a good move there. Uh, Dusty's call of it is far more entertaining, though. Shoves him into the turnbuckle. Look at this move! Whoa! What do you want to call that? Well, I want to call that a spin wheel with a with a honey honey deal 
Uh, but Buckus right into the gas chip. Yeah, this match went on a little bit longer than I would have preferred. And the Renegade finally finishes him off with a big splash off the top rope. Again, not the prettiest looking thing, but it got the job done. For the 1-2-3, as the Renegade picks up the win over the Gambler on the Prime. Hi, I'm Vanna White. Well, now you can have whiter teeth and see an amazing change in just days with the Perfect Smile system. I, I, I like that, a woman, a woman person behind him. Vanna, you're beautiful. It's an ad for the Perfect Smile system. How many years it had been since WrestleMania 4? About eight years since she appeared on that with her awkward woman person remark. Also ads for Nutrageous again and Wolverine Boots. Work like hell, feel like heaven. That's a pretty good ad campaign. I feel like uh, Don Draper could have come up with something like that, I, I suppose. But into our next match, which is the Armstrong brothers, Brad and Steve, taking on the Blue Bloods. But this is the Dave Taylor and Bobby Eaton Blue Bloods. So they were insinuating that Lord Stephen Regal had some sort of injury, but he is there accompanying them, which is really nice to see because of my obsession with just seeing Regal walk to the ring and just interact with the fans. The thing, look to your left, look disgusted, look to your right, look disgusted. Pretty much me walking around any city all the time. And they... Cruz and Dusty asked, where has Brad Armstrong been? He kind of disappeared for a while. And yeah, he would he would turn up in WCW regularly, but of course he would go other places. But in 95, he was the Smoky Mountain Heavyweight Champion for a decent chunk of the year. Of course, that company ended up going under around Thanksgiving, but before Christmas in 95. So here he is back teaming with his brother in WCW. I should find a Smoky Mountain show at some point. I... I don't know which one, you know, if I should do early, late, and besides, there's not as many of them on YouTube because there are some on the network from the run. I haven't even looked at that section in a really long time to to know if anything has been added recently or if it's actually complete or whatever. As the Blue Bloods, uh, Taylor and Eaton enter, and Regal is behind them. And Dusty kind of steals a little bit of thunder because there's a man with a camera that Dusty becomes very fixated on. We're changing into the green. We're gonna, who is that? That's the one-man gang with a camera. That's the one-man gang over there on the side. That is not the one-man gang. With a camera. Oh, he's just, he's just calling him commoner. Didn't he look like the one-man gang? Not as big. Not as big. He looked just like him that squire dave taylor the first thing you might think of is his weird role surrounding the whole chris benoit murder thing where he turns up at the house after the bodies are discovered but before that raw tribute aired or whatever what did he know when did he know it why was he there all that sort of stuff i'm not really too concerned about that what i'm concerned about is in the year 1996 he was still buying his tights at the tony Gurria store which he's pretty much alone there with the the blue with the with the red trim just it kind of makes him look a lot older than he actually was i mean how, how about how about just get like the Austin Powers underwear with like the Union Jack on it? Something like that would have been good. Not to be confused with the hockey player 
Dave Taylor, a longtime center for the Los Angeles Kings. I want to say 16 to 17 years. He was also a general manager for quite some time. And also Bruins player David Krejci, because Krejci in the Czech language means Taylor, but like one who would measure you for clothes and whatnot. And Taylor works Steve Armstrong's arm, a a toss-off, some mat wrestling going on, and then you get the exchange where you have Eaton and Brad Armstrong in, and some quick action, as you might expect, because Brad Armstrong, one of the more smooth workers that you'll ever see. So for some reason, his backstage charisma that everybody says that he had never really translated in front of the camera, which is kind of a shame, but I mean, those things tend to happen sometimes. Brad uh, comes off the top with a clothesline, which, as you as you say it, it sounds like a bigger move than it actually was. Regal is working ringside, but they don't really show much of him in this match. It, it's not a very long bout, and... They don't really cut away to him. So it is kind of disappointing from that perspective. He gets up on the apron and accidentally gets knocked off by Bobby Eaton. So you're thinking, okay, well, now they're really rushing into a finish here. But Eaton catches Steve Armstrong with a hot shot. And Regal (laughs) hits Steve with a right hand. This must be an early version of the power of the punch that would come later on in the WWF, I want to say around 2001, and that's a 1-2-3 victory for the Blue Bloods. This was so abrupt. Did I, like, forget to take notes on this match or something? I am, I'm, I'm looking through my notes here, and everything is so sort of brief, but yeah, that, that's how long it lasted. I did my check. I don't, I don't want it to be like Friends when uh, What's-Her-Name was making the trifle and put beef in it, that's a joke I also make about my sister from time to time because of her cooking abilities. Regal cuts a promo to the camera, as is required on all C&D shows, just like all the earlier people, and says that Americans will wish that we never left British rule 220, 230 years ago. I want to say, no, nah, we're good. I mean, there are some people who might not be happy with our political leaders at this time. I mean, God knows I, I'm not. But I really don't want to go running back to a place that is obsessed with a royal wedding of somebody who's not even from your country marrying a guy who looks like Sami Zayn with less hair. I don't know. But at least I got over my thing that I was mad about for a very long time that the Brits were doing. I was I was somewhat upset of the fact that they were taking our late night jobs, such as Craig Ferguson, John Oliver... I think the guy who took over for Craig Ferguson, what, James Borden, I I don't even really care who he is. I thought, these are jobs that should go to hardworking Americans. But I I like John Oliver's show, so at some point, I I just got over it. Police Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFanation.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceFanation Wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the place to be podcast, along with main event Survey Says, The Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcast, and the Military Industrial Suplex. 
We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBM Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others, available at PlayStation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlayStation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar, and West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and HistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlayStation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. WCW Motorsports is on the road again. Mr. Grissom is lit up inside, I guarantee that. Zing was again in the pitch to lend motivation to the man behind the wheel. What a very confusing time for Sting, where he's the tag team champion, but he's teaming with a heel, even though he's a babyface. And now he's hanging out with the pit crew on not even the main NASCAR series. This is the what was then called the Bush Grand National Series, which has always been presented to me as something of like a minor league to like the next, you know, to like the top. It was, I think, still the Winston Cup in the 1990s. But what always confuses me about this is on that particular race at Rockingham that they're talking about, the winner of the race was Mark Martin, who, as I know, was one of the more famous drivers of the time. And I see, like, Bobby Labonte was on there. And then there's a bunch of names I don't know. It always kind of confused me that the big guys would go down to the minor leagues and then win those races, and then they would race on Sunday. It's one of those NASCAR things that I never quite got. But this is the WCW Motorsports update. Steve Grissom is the driver, and Sting is actually interviewing him. So again, confusing times for the Stinger. I mean, no wonder why he would put on a black trench coat and hang out in the rafters about a year later, because (laughs) this is what they have him doing now. Grissom actually won the opening race at Daytona in the 1996 racing year, but this is the second race, and he finished 24th. Various issues with the car, they said, in the update segment, but I guess it's really weird that Sting is the guy interviewing Steve Grissom, because you have a man named Steve interviewing a guy named Steve, and it just kind of bugged me. Well, Steve, you win some, you lose some. Well, that's true. I, unfortunately, we didn't have a good finish. I had two flat tires on the green, but the main thing, the car ran good, handled good. We had good pit stops, that kind of stuff. So from that, uh, we will just leave Rockingham, go to Richmond next week, and see if we can't find Winter Circle again. Look for the number 29 WCW car tearing up the track in the NASCAR Bush Grand Nationals this Saturday. And it's kind of disappointing because we didn't get the cliched race driver interview. Uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly exciting there either. But I always look forward to the post-race commentary with the guys who, you know, they, they might thank God or whatever. But really in NASCAR, the God is the sponsors that are all over the fire suit that they're wearing. 
Yeah, we got a good good effort from our Home Depot team here. Uh, we we ran into some trouble, with, you know, in the Geico number ninety six car, and, and then you know, I, all I really want right now is, you know, is a tough go out there. But you know, I just want to enjoy myself, have another, another Snickers, and get back at it next week. Something like that, where they like work in the name of like all the sponsors on the car after they've driven 200, 300 miles. That's pretty good. not many things in wrestling history that are more disastrous than Billy Corgan's attempts to buy TNA like two or three years ago now and all the craziness that went around that but we have something here in the Uncensored Control Center where they pretty much do the same thing as before I saved my thoughts for the doomsday cage match with the multiple cages that they kept saying had never been seen before and dusty on the pay-per-view is like i've never seen this before it's like wait a minute you booked a triple tower of doom match at great american bash 1988 but okay fine that's almost eight years before and in even in wcw we're not going to acknowledge too much history we're going to pretend like this has never been done before hogan's there so he he's never been a part of anything like this as mentioned on the earlier segment, it was only one on four at this point. They had not really you know, confirmed everybody's involvement quite yet because they were probably still working on uh, Meng and the Barbarian. and the, You had the Taskmaster, Z-Gangsta, and the Ultimate Solution. And you hear about matches. And I had never seen this before because I had no reason to. I mean, why would I call up uncensored 96 on the network i i blew through some of the matches that with guys who were on this show and you know some of it was okay and then you get to the cage match at the end which i didn't know that i thought it was just a cage that they dropped down from the ceiling but apparently the ring was in a separate location towards the end of the aisleway where they did all this and you hear things like this is the worst match ever I think Scott Keats' final thing on this, on his review of Uncensored 96, mainly because of the main event, was strongest recommendation as humanly possible to avoid. And yet, I dove into this because I was like, okay, maybe I can find a silver lining here. Because I have managed to do that in some of the terrible things that I've seen in the past. And I'm here to report that there is no silver lining here. I I liked absolutely 0.0% of what went on in this match. First of all, I couldn't even see what was going on half the time. I don't know what Arn Anderson was wearing. It was bizarre. He did not... I mean, yeah, it was Arn Anderson, but it didn't really look like him all that much. Then you got Flair there who's wearing his usual wrestling gear, wearing the green. Somebody's got to explain to me why Ric Flair would choose certain colors at certain times. I'm very fascinated by this. He, he, He really needs to... The Ric Flair uniform system. I'd like to know what it was. And then you go down to the second cage. You got Sullivan and then 
Brian Pillman was supposed to be there, but he's not. He's off doing the loose cannon thing, as I mentioned. The Barbarian and Meng are there for some reason because they're Dungeon of Doom members. Lex Luger gets dragged into this. He was supposed to be in another match, but now for some reason he's with all these other losers. Z Gangsta, Zeus, is brought back because that is what Hulk Hogan wanted. And Hulk Hogan could get exactly what he wanted in 1996 at WCW. No, no questioning that. And the ultimate solution, so you're kind of reuniting because he was played by Jeep Swenson and Zeus and Jeep Swenson together again because he was one of the guys in No Holds Barred who was soundly defeated in the preliminary rounds of the Battle of the Tough Guys. I want to say he was Lugwrench Perkins or Lugwrench Jenkins. Well, I can never remember the name of the guy. It's Just watching this match, it was... 25 of the suckiest minutes because I could not see what was going on. I, I, I really, it's like wrestling promotions sometimes fail to account for these sort of things. Even to this day, when they did that god-awful Punjabi prison match with, I think it was Randy Orton and Jinder Mahal last year, I'm sitting there watching and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea what the object of this is. All I know is that one of Jinder Mahal's you know, extras is going to you know, interfere and he's going to end up winning the match because Randy Orton is not winning the world title in a Punjabi prison match. I would say that the Punjabi prison match is preferable to whatever the hell this was because they would escape the cage and go to ringside and like the regular ring where all the other matches were and they would battle out there too. I'm like, what is going on here? And the announcers, they have no idea what's going on because this being WCW, why would, why would we brief the announcers to, to let people know like what, what, what's going on? I, I don't know. I mean, it really kind of just gave me like a really bad headache. And th- the fact that the alliance to end Hulkamania failed so badly, literally with a woman person behind them because Nancy Sullivan is there accompanying her then-husband, they they failed so bad. Or actually, did they fail? Because Hulkamania would end three and a half months later. I think maybe the residue of this battle carried over and caused Hulkamania to actually end at Bash of the Beach. So really, those eight guys ended up winning this match, in my opinion. It just it just took a while for it to take hold. And everyone in the world does. you got to watch this on time. This woman, the nature more, and Elizabeth, and together we form the world. I always liked seeing Elizabeth with Ric Flair in 1996 WCW for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Liz is probably at her most attractive to me. Now, maybe it's because it's more, I don't know, age appropriate given how old I am now. But there seems to be some sort of consensus that she had it going on, kind of like Stacy's mom at that point. But it closed that loop of... The Ric Flair from the 1992 angle, which was another Randy Savage audible angle. They seem to be coming up with quite a few of those at the time with Jake Roberts before that, where yet Ric Flair had Elizabeth before Randy Savage did, which they kind of did the match and then they decided to do the angle in part of the lead up to WrestleMania 8. They have their little feud through 92 and now they revisit it and it ends up that Elizabeth is with Flair and not with Savage, although she would eventually be back with Savage later on in 
worst times in WCW after that. But yeah, kind of kind of fun to see her there with Rick. I always think of them at the pool. Uh, the notion of doctored photos to me in 1992 always seemed kind of strange that he would go through that kind of effort. Little did I know that in the media world that we live in now, people can fake whatever the hell they want at all times. You can, oh, that's a picture of a tweet. Every time I see a picture of a tweet, I'm immediately skeptical of whether it is real or not. So my advice to you is to be skeptical of what you see on social media. I have no idea how I ended up from going from Elizabeth and Ric Flair to that. But anyway, so there's commercials that I have to squeeze in a mention of before we get to the Ric Flair match against Alex Wright. Eight-minute abs during that craze of, we don't have time to get in real shape, so we're going to do an eight-minute program. But surprise, they threw in a bonus videotape, eight-minute buns. So get your ass in gear for the love of God. And then following that, I had mentioned how the Prime Sports Network would show the sports that maybe, well, that ESPN wasn't showing quite as often in the 90s that they just didn't have the same time for. And here is an ad for bowling. Bowling! Bowling here! Come bowl now! Get your bowling! Who's ready? Bowling! Poise. Power. The search is on for world-class bowling. It's as simple as the ABC World Team Bowling Challenge with a new stop every week on this regional sports network. Now, that ad kind of lacked a little oomph to it. I know that's par for the course for, for bowling commercials. I know that popular YouTuber Monsoon Classic occasionally will post a video or will you know draw attention via Twitter to like a bowling video. <laughs> and it's almost always hilarious. I don't know if Monsoon Classic listens to this podcast, but more of that bowling stuff on your Twitter account because I love it every time it ends up there. But when they're talking about... ABC. I'm like, does he mean the television network? Like, ABC? A-B-C. A-always-B-B-C closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. I was sent here by Rosero and Campbell on a mission of mercy. The only thing I don't like about that speech is the shot that he takes at Hyundai's, although I guess at the time the movie was made, they weren't uh, quite up to snuff. Because I've been a Hyundai owner now for... 15 years, which I've, I'm now actually realizing that it's it's kind of weird. So we go into our feature bout, Alex Wright versus Ric Flair. But with this being WCW Prime, it's not just the feature bout or whatever. We got to give it the full Dusty Rhodes intro for the match of the week. Well, you know, I had thought that I caught him in his prime, you know. I said, I know he caught me in my prime, that I caught him in his prime, and lo and behold, I look up, and here's again, once again, world's heavyweight wrestling champion. Alex Wright, as we talked about, excited about being in the moon match of the week. Opportunity knocking on the door, uh, Alex Wright today on prime. Opportunity doesn't knock too often. He has to take advantage of it. So right here, prime match cut move match all of it in one right here that was a good move i have to admit that was a pretty good move by dusty so you got alex wright here and i've talked about the berlin character in 1999 
on several occasions, saying that I would talk about it at some point. And quite honestly, I don't think I'm ever going to get to a 1999 WCW show, late 1999, when Berlin is actually covered, or even one of the vignettes, which you have to admit, by any sort of standard, any standard you want to use, those vignettes were really, really great with like the classical music and all that, and like how this is the perfect specimen and all that. Now, maybe it's a, hewing a little too close to the Nazi eugenics thing, given, you know, that he is a German character. I, I will grant that. But it seemed like a very now character. And don't give me the crap about the trench coat, which is what delayed the Berlin character in the first place because they were going to roll it out. And then Columbine happens. They push it until August. And then this character, which by all rights is a good enough wrestling character and something that should be revisited. I mean, a dastardly foreign heel who only wants to do things his own way who is a very sound technical wrestler now he's not a monster heel sort of like what Rusev was in his first year in WWE more recently but I looked at him at the time and was like holy shit that's Alex Wright because he looked like a completely different human being with no hair and all that stuff and then not not to be too all three stooges about this but he was a victim of circumstance because you had a number of things conspiring against him at once number one he has a match at fall brawl 99 against buff bagwell who the fuck is buff bagwell to say i am not going to do the job to this character that we've rolled out with weeks of vignettes that is like so wcw and like everything all the problems with WCW can be summed up in Buff Bagwell refused to do a job to a new character who had been heavily promoted on TV. And then they sub in Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who I've talked about with praise for much of the time on this show, but he goes out and basically sandbags him. And I don't know what the hell it was about Alex Wright being sandbagged by guys on pay-per-view. You had Paul Romer at Super Brawl in February of 95, doing the exact same thing. Who the hell is Hacksaw Jim Duggan in 1999 to be no-selling some new character's offense? Really friggin' pisses me off. And then you had stuff even before that, like the woman translator that they had for him because he refused to speak English. Could they have found literally anybody better? They could have picked 88% of the audience would have been better at that job than the woman doing it with her halting speech pattern and all that all that stuff. It just, it just makes me crazy, the fact that that character didn't work. And then, at the end of it, when things start to go south, they start pushing the wall, and then Berlin ends up going back to being Alex Wright with no hair and teaming with Disco Inferno. It really makes me mad and is, you know, yet another reason why I couldn't stand WCW after a while. The reboot in April of 2000, when they just reset everything, that did it for me because that pretty much killed all continuity. My theory is that you can always book your way out of trouble if you give yourself enough time. And the fact that they just hit the reset button seemed like a really lazy way of doing things. So I'm really kind of worked up over the Alex Wright thing. And when I look at him, and when I see Alex Wright as he is in 1996... I say, okay, so this big tall dude 
from Germany who can do a lot of junior heavyweight sort of stuff. If this guy came along in the year 2018, I don't know if he would be in WWE, but he would be a really big freaking deal somewhere, whether it be in Europe. I don't know where, but I think he was ahead of his time by two decades, uh, clearly. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but you get Ric Flair his opponent, who is rather timeless. He does not have the belt with him. He is the WCW champion. And usually finding out when these WCW Prime matches were taped is a bit of a challenge, but this one actually is listed on the history of WWE.com. It was taped on February 1st of 96 at Universal Studios in Florida, which actually jogged my memory about something because I went on a family vacation later in February, so I missed this by two or three weeks. I don't know if I went to Universal Studios on that trip, but I, I probably did just out of boredom. I mean, by that point, I was 16, and I I, I don't know if I had really much use for anything but, but Epcot. Because I'm a sentimental dude, every time I would go to Epcot, I would have to go to the Canada Pavilion to see the damn video, which, by the way, never changed from 1986 onward. I mean, come on, you you could have done a little something with that. They throw in some ads pre-match, which I like because it's a hell of a lot better than doing it in the middle of the match. I mean, it's all pre-taped, so you can do it. You get an ad for the Wendy's Country French Chicken Sandwich. Wendy's has some pretty good sandwiches on specials, I have to admit. Not to be all Jim Cornette here, but they had this recent one. It was a Southwest chicken avocado sandwich. I I particularly like the avocado. For the fact that it wasn't like black or brown or anything like that, uh, they actually had fresh avocado. And then 2200 weight gainer, which appears to be marketed to high schoolers so that, you know, smallish high school dudes can impress girls or something. I thought that was a little weird. And they marketed creatine, which would become a big deal later on. But it would be seen in Mark McGuire's locker in 1998 during the great home run chase. And then add for the ab roller, which, quite frankly, I could I could stand to do some ab work. Uh, as I said, I, I should get back to doing my medicine ball exercises, but, uh, you know... I'm doing the podcast right now, so I'm a little too busy for that. So they join the match in progress, sort of, as Alex Wright has a side headlock and Flair immediately counters with a back suplex. And then he kind of, you don't really see him pull an object out of his tights, but it appears that he's holding one and he nails Wright with a right hand. And then he stuffs it back into his trunk, so we don't know what it was, whether it was a roll of coins or, or whatnot, but... If it's a roll of coins or or even just a, a, a solid rod or whatever, and you're sticking it back in your trunks, that serves a dual purpose. It's helping you not only win the match, but, you know, you're stuffing it for the ladies. And, you know, you're down there in Florida, and, you know, the, 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 women, the women are all crazy down there. So chops in the corner, but you can tell this is a WCW Prime audience because there's no woo after he does it. The knee drop where he kind of stalks his man out of the corner. No woo there as well. So WCW Prime audience is very different, where Renegade is wildly over for a period of time, but they're not wooing at the uh, usual points of the Ric Flair match. And then Flair goes for a series of pins, which I was kind of confused by. It looked like he was hooking it extra tight, 
and only getting two, and then they kind of make their way closer to the rope so that Flair can just be a dick and put his feet on the top rope, which, as I look at it, with the kayfabe hat back on, chin strap on, I'm not sure that actually is something that would help you pin a guy, because wouldn't it lessen the weight that you have on the man in question? Unless the whole concept is that your feet are sort of hooked in the robes and that's the advantage that you're getting. So the crowd is actually getting mad at this because they know you're not supposed to put your feet on the robes for a pin. And they, 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 They've seen other wrestling apparently. It did make me think though, would I rather be in the crowd for a WCW Prime taping or 1991 primetime wrestling with the studio audience and all that? And the answer is definitely the 1991 primetime wrestling. <laughs> Because, I don't know, I feel like that's something that would live on forever. And, and the Prime, I, I, you, you would have to sit through a lot of boring stuff. And you wouldn't get any of the commentary if if you're sitting there. You'd have to wait for it uh, weeks later. Uh, get a punch-chop exchange. And Flair is actually staggered by Alex Wright, who uh, scores with a drop kick. And for a really tall guy, he could throw a pretty good drop kick. He's, I don't, I don't know what it is about Alex Wright, but... Uh, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the fact that like, how tall he is and the things he can do in the ring. And Wright, uh, they, they, they kind of go through an exchange here in the corner. Flair tries another feet on the ropes pin that fails. But Wright actually does the bridge up into a backslide spot, which seems like when you're working with Ric Flair, that's sort of a rite of passage because it is something that you would see, and by the way, no pun intended on the rite of passage remark, but it seems like something you see in a lot of Ric Flair matches that he uses as a transition in the middle. You know, you can, you know, kind of stretch things out. You can, it can be like a 30, 40 second spot there. And Alex catches Flair in the gut as he's coming at him. And Cruz reminds us that Alex Wright is 21 years old except for the fact that he wasn't 21 years old. He was still 20 because he didn't turn 21 until May 17th. So think about this, okay? He just turned, Alex Wright, 43 years old, and he's been out of the game for quite some time. He owns a promotion, apparently, over in Europe and is still undefeated against Triple H, which is something that I'll forever enjoy. Maybe he did lose to him at a house show. I don't know. But as far as I know, he's 4-0 against Jean-Paul Levesque. Ten mounted punches is followed by a corner whip and a backdrop by Wright. But Flair ends up regaining control with a back elbow. And then with Wright down on the canvas, Flair kind of chokes him with his shin, a rather unusual move. I'm not sure I've ever seen Flair do that in any other match where he just kind of puts the bottom part of his leg over the man's throat but Wright fires up once again with a spinning heel kick I only give it uh, 5.5 Owens out of 10 on the Owen Hart spinning heel kick skip he goes up top and scores with a drop kick a missile drop kick but that only gets two and then Irish whip misses on the drop kick and I think okay well we're definitely going in for the finish because Flair goes for the figure four but Wright actually counters with an inside cradle for a two count. So this match has had some good back and forth action going on. Corner whip, but Flair gets the elbow up and hits Wright right in the mush with it. And then Flair goes up top, and I think, okay, is Ric Flair actually going to hit a top rope move? But nope, nope. He actually gets slammed off the top rope. What a shock. I hope you were sitting down for that. So now 
Alex goes up top and <laughs> he kind of does a dive and it lands like a flare just kind of walks out of the way <laughs> very nonchalantly and they're like oh the crafty veteran rick flair like okay he just kind of took an out of control dive at him that just completely whiffed and now we have the figure four by rick flair locks it in they make reference to alex wright missing time a few months earlier with a knee injury to kind of, you know, maybe explain the fact that he would, why he would give up in the figure four. And he does to the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, Ric Flair, who picks up the victory here on WCW Prime. It's interesting because on the Nitro that aired on March 11th, so Alex Wright was on that show as well, challenging the new WCW World Television Champion, Lex Luger. So he actually faced two of the champions in the company on shows that aired on this day. Now, granted, he lost both of them, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> there's no shame in losing to one half of the four horsemen from 1987. This was a rather fun match for a WCW Prime show. They certainly gave them more time than some of the other matches. I mean, that Blue Bloods one seemed to have ended rather abruptly. Then they get to the end and really confuse me and say, this portion of WCW Worldwide is brought to you by Pep Boys. And I'm like, all right, what show am I even watching here? You, you've now said it's WCW Worldwide. No, no, this is the Prime. It's its own universe. Get the hell out of here, WCW Worldwide. You've seen the hit series Cops, but you've never seen Cops like this. It's uncut, uncensored. Come on, man. It's too hot to show you here, but order now and you'll see it all. First of all, the guy doing the voiceover for that sounded very much like Chris Cruz from WCW Prime. I don't know if it was him doing it, but it just also made me think of the Hot Cops from Arrested Development. There are also ads for Head and Shoulders, Wolverine Boots again, Tarzan, The Epic Adventures, it, Head and Shoulders. I once bought like a giant bottle from BJ's Wholesale. I think it, it took me like forever to get through that. It was like berry flavored or something. It was a real mistake on my part because I usually just get like the regular shampoo. I don't need my hair to smell like blackberry or anything like that. It's, it's perfectly fine. So next week on The Prime, and this is how they wrap things up got a St. Patrick's Day special, even though it's going to be March 18th, you know, you're going to cover it. It's the day before. It's still going to be some hangover. So St. Patrick's Day hangover will carry over. And naturally, with this great Irish holiday, the American dream, he's got a take on this. Well, <laughs> I got some ideas, but let me tell you, on the Prime, we can't do that. Bottom line, what an exciting event we got next week on Prime. Prime Cup, but I got word of leprechauns. Leprechauns called me on the phone. Leprechauns are out in force and a leprechaun say next week he say dream can i come on and do the leprechaun move match of the week i can't say for sure but for all the little kids out there and all the fans that love leprechauns next week a leprechaun might be here a mooing on the move match of the week right here on the prime if not i might wear my green my green bloomers you know what i mean i got some bloomers that are green and my drawers are green and i'm gonna be ready for prime next week when I hear Dusty refer to leprechauns, I think that he's referring to some sort of criminal who is a leper, who is on the island, you know, serviced by Father Damien Devaster. I, I don't know what he's exactly talking about here. By the way, 96 would have been the year that I learned about Father Damien in my religion textbook in high school, so 
I guess as a timely reference for my own life, but that is how they wrap up on WCW Prime for March 11th, 1996. Thank you so much for listening. I don't have a show for next week, 67. I'm just going to kind of look around and see what's out there. It probably will not be a WWF show, as I have one already set up for 68. I love how I've already planned out what episode 68 will be without knowing what 67 is, because (laughs) there's a reason why I want the show to be 68 rather than 67. It's got nothing to do with Yarma Yager or anything like that. But it will be an episode of the Superstars of Wrestling from late 1988, where the big boss man beats down Hulk Hogan on the Brother Love show. So do stay tuned for that. As for next week, I'm pretty sure I'll find something good out there on the YouTubes. I don't know what yet. It might be Mid-South. It might be... I don't know, it might be early ECW, it might be WCW again, because I've never done two straight weeks of WCW shows, believe it or not. This is now 66, and I haven't done two in a row. Between now and next week, I ask you a favor as a listener of the show, and I'd like to think that I have built up something of an audience here. No, I was not invited to StarCast or anything like that. Not that I would go, because I'm already going to Chicago in July, and even if I was invited, I probably would skip out on all the festivities and just go to Wicker Park and hang out, have some pizza and beer at peace, and then make my way over to the map room and and probably just hold court and maybe just record a live podcast for anybody who is standing around me or whatever. But be that as it may, to use a Vince McMahon-ism, All I ask you is, if you can't leave a review on iTunes, five stars being the preferred (laughs) rating, if you could, tell tell a friend about the show. I know this is a wrestling podcast, but it's really not a wrestling podcast. I mean, I just kind of riff and go off on certain things. I I feel like I've spent half this show talking about the commercials on it because this episode of Prime seemed to be very commercial heavy and none of them really captured my imagination too much except for that brief bowling one uh, because it's bowling and, you know, I actually own bowling shoes. I, I, I probably should go bowling more than I do. But up here in Massachusetts, it's a little weird because we have the normal 10 pin like the rest of the country but we also have the candle pin which even though i should be provincial and defend the candle pin bowling i don't know if i really can because i never really enjoyed it because when you're a kid and you're doing that your scores are always low and you you never you never feel good about yourself so anyway enough about bowling i should be wrapping up the show here do do tell a friend tell two friends Spread the word in whatever message board that you might be posting on, on in your podcast thread or whatever. I, I greatly appreciate stuff like that, those of you who do support the show, because this is just me sitting here in my kitchen next to my balsam fir candle, producing it all, editing as I go. It's a labor of love. It's one of my favorite things. You know, this is what gets me through the week. I'm kind of, you know, I don't know if you like your job, but I'm not particularly fond of my job right now. And doing this is 
One of the things that gets me through that Monday to Friday, the fact that I could talk into this $23 microphone that I bought off Amazon a year and a half ago and hopefully entertain you in some way. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you in advance for spreading the word. And tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only.